0: Brothers and sisters, grace to you and peace from the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're in the middle of a series of sermons this summer from the book of Acts. Last Sunday, we began the story of the conversion of Paul. Uh, Last we saw of him, Paul was blind as a newborn kitten, being led by the hand of people he couldn't see because the risen Christ had struck him blind. It always seems to be true that a real encounter with Jesus Christ means losing something. And what Saul lost was a system of certainty. Like most of us, he built his life stone by stone on top of a bunch of assumptions. Assumptions about himself, about the world, about God. And so Christ had to come and shake the ground a bit. As it turns out, the blindness is a gift to Saul that brings him to the place finally of saying, Lord, I don't know the way. I don't know what to do. Show me. Help me. That's a pretty good place. Sooner or later, all of us have to do our share of time sitting in the dark. And what I hope that we'll remember this morning is that it's Christ who loves us enough to strip us of what is not true. That's what he does for Saul on the Damascus Road to this puffed up little man who thinks he knows everything about God. God blesses him with a temporary impairment. Saul loses something as precious as his vision. But following Christ also means finding some things. Today... Let's talk about what Saul finally sees when his blind eyes are opened and who he becomes when he has been transformed. And by the way, for any of you in the room today who may be new uh, to this book, uh, when you hear the names Saul and Paul in my message today, I'm talking about the same person, Uh, The Apostle Paul is one of those people in the Bible who went through a name change in the middle of his life. We know him mostly as Paul, but in our story today, at the time when it takes place, people still know him as Saul. So you will hear me use both names. Just wanted to be clear. When Saul is struck blind on the road to Damascus, he hears Christ say to him, get up. And go into the city, and you will be told what to do. And as we said last week, Paul is not someone who is accustomed to being told what to do. But his companions lead him to Damascus, where he sits in the dark waiting. He won't eat, he won't drink, he sits there pondering, pondering, what could all of this mean? But finally, after those long hours of waiting, Saul hears the door open. He hears someone come into the room, and now this visitor comes closer and stops right in front of Saul. He's startled to feel warm hands on his face, and then he hears a voice, a voice he's never heard before. It's a man's voice, and these are the astonishing words Saul hears him speak Brother Saul, brother, from a stranger? Friends, meet Ananias. This is his only scene in all of scripture. We know nothing else about Ananias, nothing he ever did or said in his life than this one thing, that he went to this man who had been his enemy and touched him and called him brother. This is Ananias' entire legacy in all of scripture. As it happened, Ananias was at home minding his own business, and he's an ordinary fellow. He's not an apostle. He's not a deacon or a church leader as far as we know. He's just hanging out when he has what Luke describes as a vision. Sometimes God gives dream and vision in order to take hold of our lives for beautiful purposes. And in this vision, Ananias hears a voice say, Ananias... And unlike Saul on the road to Damascus, Ananias is not afraid. Here I am, Lord, he says immediately. The voice says, Ananias, go to Straight Street and find a man there named Saul of Tarsus. He is waiting for you. To which Ananias responds, Are you kidding me? (laughs) This man is a terrorist. His whole mission is to kill the very people who follow you. And the Lord says, go, trust me. He's an instrument. He's my choice to represent me to everyone, Gentiles, kings, Jews. What's more, Ananias, he's going to suffer. He's going to suffer hard for my name. So God has commanded and Ananias has heard. Saul is waiting, in blindness, praying and fasting, hoping for a future. And Ananias must go to him in order for Saul to see again. But see, Ananias knows a truth about Saul, an indisputable truth. Saul is a killer of disciples. So now what we see here is a disciple of Christ facing a decision. Do I follow my gut here and stay away? Or do I follow the word of the Lord and touch this dangerous person? See, we know that God sees sees us all the way to the heart. The question is, as disciples, can we see with God? Can we see people who either in rumor or in truth are dangerous? Can we see them as God sees them covered with divine desire? Well, Ananias goes, maybe muttering to himself the whole way I can't believe I'm doing this. What am I doing? But Luke tells us that when he gets to Straight Street and enters the house and sees the man in the corner who is blind and who's praying, he finds that Saul doesn't look like the enemy he was expecting. Ananias is overwhelmed by the urge to take Saul's face in his hands. Brother Saul, he says to him, the Lord Jesus has sent me to you so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And at that moment, something falls from Saul's eyes like scales, and he can see. And the first thing he sees is a face, the face of a brother he never knew he had. And Ananias baptizes him then and there, and Luke tells us they share a meal together. Friends, so many treasures are found by those who enter the way of Christ. So many. But none brighter than the treasure Saul first sees when his blind eyes are opened. The friends of God who are our friends. The community of Christ who are our community now. There's nothing we need more because truth is we are not going to make it down here without them. How are you and I going to live a faithful life? How are we going to grow toward God without some companions on the way, without people who will listen to us and walk with us and tell us the truth about ourselves, laugh with us and cry with us and encourage us? Didn't Jesus, you heard it in the text that Elisa read this morning, didn't Jesus, when he sent the disciples out into the world, send them not one at a time, but two by two in pairs? We need companionship because, see, if if all we get as Christians, um, as many Christians seem to assume, is some kind of private encounter with God, as Saul got on the road to Damascus, then the truth is we are still partially blind. It's when we find ourselves touched by real flesh and blood, sometimes messy, always imperfect church, that our blind eyes begin truly to be opened. The thing is, we have to keep letting Christ open our eyes to each other. We never outgrow our need of this because our eyes keep closing to one another. And Christ has to keep opening them back up. Look, for example, at what happens to Paul. This was not in today's text. It's just a little farther in the very same chapter. Shortly after Saul has this amazing transformational experience with Christ, he goes up to Jerusalem. He joins some believers in, in worship. He wanders down the aisle, slides into the pew, and pretty soon heads are turning all over the sanctuary. They're singing Amazing Grace, but the hymn just sort of trails off. Isn't that Saul of Tarsus? Yeah, what's he doing here? He's pretending to be a Christian, but I'll bet he's taking names. Don't trust him. Don't let him see you looking at him. He's bad news. And then from the back of the room, one of the most respected members of the church comes forward, stands beside Saul, shares a hymnal with him, and after the service introduces him to the rest of the congregation as a genuine Christ follower. What might have happened to Paul, to the church, to the gospel mission in the world if Barnabas had not taken the initiative to introduce a stranger at church? What might have happened had Ananias not found the courage to go to a stranger and embrace a brother? How many Saul's might still be waiting out there today, maybe knowing about God but not really seeing because no Ananias has cared enough to go and reach toward them with love and friendship of Christ. Or maybe someone did befriend them, but then, like Paul, they've come to church and haven't come back because there was no Barnabas to welcome them and love them into community. These eyes of ours just keep closing. That's just the way it is. And they have to be open again and again. Friends, I love watching many of you being Ananias and Barnabas in the world. I do. It's beautiful. And the truth is, and will always be, that more than, more than the buildings we build, more than the programs we establish, more than the fellowship we enjoy in here with one another, it's the courageous reaching out to strangers in the name of Christ that will transform this church. I want to close this morning with a story, a true story, that first came to light years ago when it appeared in Studs Turkle's wonderful book called Race. It's about a man and a woman in Durham, North Carolina, who used to hate one another. And the story was actually made into a movie that was released this spring, starring Taraji P. Henson and Sam Rockwell. The man was C.P. Ellis a white man who had grown up dirt poor, who carried a lot of shame inside of him about that and whose shame gave way over time to this dark bitterness inside of him. And he began to blame black people for all that he didn't have. I had to hate somebody, C.P. Ellis said to Studs Terkel later in the interview. C.P. Ellis joined the Ku Klux Klan, eventually became the leader of the Klan in Durham, well, it was the 1960s, and African American people had had enough. They were protesting and organizing, and in the middle of every demonstration in Durham was this big, strong black woman named Ann Atwater. Ann was a force to be reckoned with, and at every city council meeting, she, in which the issue was confronted, she was there, and so was C. P. Ellis. And he hated her most of all. Turns out, the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare decided to give to Durham a $78,000 grant to help solve racial problems in the schools. And so they had a big meeting, and all kinds of people were there. C.P. Ellis said he had to force himself to sit down with all those blacks and Jews that showed up. And that night, they formed a committee to work on the problems. They elected two co-chairs. Want to guess who they were? C.P. Ellis and Ann Atwater. They were both in shock. Neither one could stand the other. They wanted to say no, but finally they gave in. C.P. could barely bring himself to sit down with Ann. And in those first few meetings, he brought a weapon. He would show her the machine gun he kept in the trunk of his car, just in case, he said. Anne said in her interview with Studs Turkle, I had my weapon too, but I didn't leave it in the trunk. I had it in my hand. It was my Bible. And I said to CP, we'll see which one is stronger, God or the devil. And she was sneaky too. She arranged for some of the meetings to begin with singing and she would watch CP and she'd watch his feet start to tap and then his hands begin to clap to some familiar hymn, and then she'd think to herself, oh, we've got him now. They began to notice some things they had in common. Both were looked down upon by upper class white folk. And then their own communities began shunning them. Klansmen were telling CP, you sold us out. And some black people were telling Ann, you're betraying us. And the children of both were ridiculed in school, which caused the two to listen even harder to one another and to work all the harder to bring, to bring things to light. And eventually some changes actually were accomplished. But nothing changed as much as the lives and hearts of C.P. Ellis and Ann Atwater. She said, C.P. would never shake my hand. Now, we don't shake hands, we hug each other and embrace. CP, who was weeping at the point at this point in the interview, said, I began to see how here we are, two people from far ends of the fence having identical problems in the world except her being black and me being white. And he said, up to that point, we had cussed each other, hated each other, but something was happening inside of me and I began to love her. May I ask you this morning to try something a little dangerous? I want to invite you just right now to think of somebody you know, and be very specific. Think of someone whom you find it hard to think of and love as a brother or sister, and we all have someone, friends. Someone who's hurt or angered you, maybe. Someone you just find it hard to understand, or maybe someone whose politics or theology rankles you. Chances are, in some ways, they've been blind toward you, and chances are you've been a little blind toward them. You and I have no power to heal ourselves of blindness, but love does. The love of God in Christ opens blind eyes and pours out understanding like sweet oil in between all the raw spaces between us. Once when the space between us and God who made us seemed unbridgeable, love came on our behalf. Across all the impossible differences between creature and creator, Christ came reaching. And in light of that love, maybe it's time for you and me to do a little reaching of our own. In just a minute, we're going to sing a simple song. It's our way of stepping through a doorway to silence and stillness in which the Spirit continues to speak. And today in the silence, I want to invite you to let love take you by the hand and lead you to some new way of looking at that brother and sister that you just brought to mind. Most of all today, I want to invite you to look for the face of Christ in the face of the other because friends, we never really see Christ until we see him in every face, every face. Let's enter into stillness now.